Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey folks, welcome to the Unsung Podcast. I am one of your three hosts, Mark Fraser, and I'm joined by two androids. I am a robot. I (laughs) am here to destroy humanity. (laughs) I'm sorry, but these are just being silly. As any serious cyber metal fan knows, it's cyborgs. <laughs> what even is cyborg? We'll talk about. I've never really heard this term cyber metal before. We need to talk no, about you've that. You've just come up with it, Chris. Let's talk about that in a few minutes. That's because you're a wee punk dweeb. You're not into like serious misanthropia like me and Dave. You're into like, oh, the girl jilted me. Oh, I went to the prom by myself. Oh, I couldn't buy a six pack. Because I've not got any pubes That's the kind of shit that your stupid bands sing about Me and Dave, we listen to music where they sing about Nanotechnology is going to destroy everything AI is going to start a nuclear holocaust And and if it sounds like the bands that we listen to Sat up after 11 o'clock watching ITV movies Then that's just a coincidence (laughs) (laughs) It's actually very, very intensely researched Modern philosophy Love a love a concept album. Love a concept yeah, album about the yeah. humanity. But ultimately, this is why you just don't get it. <laughs> well, uh, before we talk about the, the the title of the podcast, before we talk about the album by that band, <laughs> who are on the title of this podcast, um, just want to do the usual stuff. You know, you know how it goes now. If you're a subscriber, sorry, uh, you're already you're, <laughs> you're exempt. You're exempt from this. <laughs> no, this next bit. You're exempt from this. Um, if you like this show and you would like this show to continue and see all of our really huge plans fulfilled um, you can donate some money to us either on Patreon or via PayPal if you go to unsungpod.net forward slash donate you'll have one of those options with you Patreons for those people that want to stick with us for a little while there's loads of really cool tiers there um, like we'll make you a playlist we'll make you a t- we'll make you a cracking t-shirt we'll come to your goddamn house if you give us 10 grand <laughs> um, or if you just fancy a one-off commitment then mm. hit us up on PayPal as some people have done in the past so at the end of this, what is likely to be overlong episode, uh, we're going to announce a new bonus feature for patrons, which will give you hopefully quite a good laugh, uh, probably at our expense. Uh, but you can only get it if you're a patron. Yep. Um, so there's some incentive to see us mocking ourselves and each other in the public eye. Yep. 
Uh, we'll talk a what? little bit more about what that actually is at the end of the episode. But one other thing I wanted to mention that has just popped into my head is uh, we are eligible for a British Podcast Award, apparently, right? So if you're a sub, you've already got the email. Uh, if you're not, if you go to the, the British Podcast Awards website, uh, go to the Listener's Choice section, type in our name, and you can vote for us there. Please go and do that. Apparently, that's a really nice thing. I don't like competitions, but fuck it. Well, what's going to happen? Like, there's happen? only one winner, and we're up against every podcast in Britain. So, yeah. you know. Uh, they don't stand a chance. <laughs> yeah, it's just a matter of time until we've got that trophy. But that closes uh, on the 5th of July, so you'll have to vote the week this comes out. <laughs> if you listen to this in the future, then we've already, we've already lost. Uh, but so it's run by <laughs> BBC Sounds, and it would just be great if they knew that we existed. <laughs> Yeah, if there's like, who the fuck are these guys with 400 votes that we've never heard of? That would be that would be nice. <laughs> uh, Mark, I can't help but notice in your voice, you just seem a wee bit jaded. Is that is that anything to do with the the week that we just had researching the the subject material for David's choice? I mean, I have a sore head, right? Um, I don't, I can't, I couldn't tell you if I, if I had that sore head for a week or not. It's just all. <laughs> It's just all in my head and it has been for the past seven days. Uh, but yeah. I can confirm that my flatmate now hates Fear Factory. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Craig. <laughs> um You know what? It's been a, it's been an enlightening week, you know, a lot of You've learned a lot about the coming cyber apocalypse. Yeah, uh-huh. Really fucking love Terminator, these guys. Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> they really do like Terminator. <laughs> Um, the one thing I've learned this week is you definitely can tear me apart. Uh, <laughs> and this is the way. Uh, it, I thought I was doing okay. My legs were holding up. And then around about archetype, I think I just, that was me. That was that. <laughs> I started to wobble. Yeah. And, and from then on in, I was feeling actual physical pain. Now, before you keep slagging off the band that I'm about to <laughs> talk about, um, let's just hit pause. We're doing Fear Factory, and I think last week I hadn't decided if we were going to do obsolete or demanufacture. Mm. Um, I've gone for demanufacture. I think in the context of heavy metal it is a hugely influential one but I still think that it is underappreciated under, and underrated and definitely in terms of records sold as well It like Fear Factory haven't sold nearly as many as other gods of the metal uh, scene like Pantera, like Slayer like these big properly influential bands um and do you know when I talk to my pals who were in a metal as kids or listen to Kerrang or whatever, and you talk about Fear Factory, they just all go, "Give me that bow!" Like they just all know Lynchpin or maybe the the Gary Newman cover Cars, but it's mostly Lynchpin. Which became, you know, a massive fucking rock club hit. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, in the 90s, their second and third records were really, really influential for good and bad. 
you know, they they did uh, influence quite a lot of new metal. That, that's, let's just, before we move past that, because uh, we, we won't spend too much time on that, but we've spoken in the past about some bands that, to some extent, through no fault of their own, uh, helped pave the way for the worst excesses of new metal. Yeah. Faith No More, uh, Helmet, Rage Against the Machine, um, and to some extent probably Red Hot Chili Peppers. Um, but Fear Factory are definitely part of that group, I think, mm. on the, obviously, the, the opposite end of the spectrum from Red Hot Chili's. The difference, I think, with Fear Factory uh, and something that Slayer were probably guilty of as well is that they then indulged... A in little bit. This, yeah, I would argue less than you know, like Slayer, Machine Head definitely did. Fear Factory dipped their toes in and then decided. Well, I think they might have got dropped, but <laughs> <laughs> but and they split up and they fell out with each other, which yeah. uh, we'll go into because that happens quite a lot. The two things mm. I wanted to mention. You know, you said that they haven't sold as many records as all other bands have. One thing that I find quite interesting is when you go and look at their plays on Spotify. Mm-hmm. On, on through all their albums so clearly Lynchpin it's like their most listened to song and they still got almost a million listeners monthly but see when you listen to, when you see their records man the drop off between the, the single whatever that happens to be uh, and the rest of the songs of the record is fucking ginormous on pretty much every single record including including the manufacture right yeah they're very much if you if you look at Spotify plays they're a band that have profile and therefore and they have big hits like within metal that are then going on playlists and going on like best ofs and and stuff like that and going in rock club playlists and stuff like that. But yeah, it's it then it's fans and other guys in metal bands that are listening to the albums all the way through and mm-hmm. appreciating them. And so. uh, has it turned my fucking Spotify algorithm into an absolute dumpster fire? Like I now have I now have a <laughs> new metal rewind section on my fucking Spotify and it's is literally corn, hunt biscuit, papa roach. Have you only just got that? Oh, I thought, Seven I thought that yeah, came I've never had like, that before, with Spotify. <laughs> Taproot, oh, Cold Chamber, Head PE, oh, Crazy Town, Spine Shank, Orgy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I thought that just came with knowing Dave. <laughs> so did I, but apparently Oh not. yeah, it's you, the algorithm of you knowing me, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is why I insisted on using the, the podcast Spotify account and not my own, because <laughs> you guys would have come, you would have made it basically unusable <laughs> um, well we'll do a wee bit of due diligence on Fear Factory then from LA uh, shock statistic formed in 1989 yep mm-hmm. 30 years have been gone, over 30 years have been going fucking hell uh, as old as their or- original name was Ulceration mm. yep yeah, didn't change their name until 1990 they became Fear Factory because of some Scary factory. <laughs> well, they were. I think they were called Fear the Factory for a little bit because they saw some factory with like armed guards outside, and then they were like, "Oh, let's drop the the." But I mean, that's quite a lame way to. Well, I don't know. It existed. The fact it was in the eighties, man. A lot of things were lame about the eighties. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, Dino Cazares, Burton C. Bell, Raymond Herrera, and Christian Olde Wolbers um, were the kind of definitive lineup. There are a lot of asterisks next to that, as we'll we'll, we'll get to. Uh, for the record, on this album, uh, Dino Cazares was Heavy Duty Scary Fire, uh, Burton C. Bell was Dry Lung Vocal Martyr, Raymond Herrera was Maximum Effective Pulse Generator, uh, and Christian Old Wolbers was Total Harmonic Distortion. 
Yeah. It's distortion, not destruction. I thought they were going for destruction, but they they pulled back at the last minute. Well, he wasn't on the uh, record anyway, so. <laughs> well, you know, uh, accounts of that vary. Um, by the way, did you know that Cazares, before he was in Fear Factory, was in a band called the Douche Lords? Yep, <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> Which the more you get to know about him seems appropriate. And they also uh, found Burton C. Bell when they heard him singing a U2 song. That's right, yeah. Uh, I mean, Cazares and Burton C. Bell are the sort of like the fulcrum of this band, even though uh, Herrera and Wolbers feel they are 50% entitled to the usage of the name Fear Factory Incorporated, but uh, not everybody agrees. Um, Cazares says that he and Bell initially bonded over the band Godflesh. Who uh, that's a name that's going to come up a few times, I'd imagine, across these episodes. Um, did Fear Factory maybe? I mean, one thing they're known for is pioneering that sort of growl to croon mm-hmm. uh, tran- transition, something that became really big under new metal. It's definitely one of the things that they lent to that genre. They had, I mean, the, the early stuff was was readily compared to Godflesh and, and Napalm Death as well at the time. They wanted it to be grindy, but a bit more industrial, uh, a bit more bombastic. They actually recorded an album in 1991 with a Mr. Ross Robinson. Uh, the album was called Concrete. It didn't actually get released until 2002. We'll get to that in a wee bit more detail, but... Um, I mean, there's there's all kinds of weird accounts of that album. Uh, claims that it took Dino Cazares two weeks to get his guitar tone. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, and it was recorded in Blackie Lawless from Wasp's studio. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. a throwback to the 80s. Uh, yeah, citation needed for that uh, two weeks to record, uh, choose a guitar tone, by the way. Uh, the band were unhappy at the time, I think, with the recording contract and the whole album thing kind of froze. Um, they retained the rights to the songs, but Robinson retained the rights to the recordings, and I think he then went away and used it to sort of form part of his CV. But um, they, they kind of hit the ground running in 1992, and the initial sound of the band isn't really what I think they became known for. Um, and so, I guess, before we get to the discography, it's probably a, a good juncture to sort of talk about why you chose this band I'm going to guess this is because this band is the sort of cyber metal band the the definitive cyber metal band um, we'll unpack that a wee bit Mark I know you felt that a lot of their music is indebted to groove metal I get that point I think you're right in a lot of places for me I think a lot of their music is perhaps more heavily indebted to industrial metal and industrial music in general and there's also a lot of just really techy stuff in there as well. Uh, but they also came at a time when the industry and the whole recording process was changing, uh, as were some of the kind of like business models, things like remix albums and things that were becoming far, far more common. And I have a little bit of a sort of proposition uh, as regards, a theory as regards why they developed in the direction they developed when, when that decision happened. Um, but... Cyber metal, industrial metal, tech metal, will we look into that? I mean, Dave, is that is that what this band is to you? I mean, yeah, but it's not like I, I have a big list of cyber metal 
records that I go back to. Can we like, can we me, unpack what that is? I still don't know what cyber metal actually means. <laughs> right. Well, industrial. So if we're talking like. 80s industrial music um, which was kind of big and bombastic had a lot of electronics in it and and also uh, ran a gamut as well so you've got bands from back in that era like Killing Joke Really early killing jokes, quite industrial, even though it was sort of seen as kind of post-punky as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got Skinny Puppy. Really, really big kind of industrial band, um, more kind of like oddball techno, sort of post-punk, but they had a lot of really dark themes in their mm. music, and I think that lent itself to to part of that label. And that, I mean, Fear Factory were huge fans of Skinny Puppy, and I think that noirish, sinister sort of aesthetic uh, inf- informed what they did quite a bit. The Killing Joke thing, you know, the first. The self-titled one in 1980, uh, What's This For, 1981, and Revelations in 1982. After that, they sort of transitioned into more post-punk and poppy sort of stuff. But the guitar tones in those, and again, the sinister aesthetic, um, lent themselves to, to the early years. And the other primitive sort of industrial bands, probably like bands like uh, Decroups. Decroups. Nineteen eighty, they started, and they were like back back then. They were like a kind of experimental noise band. They then transitioned into post punk. They then transitioned into industrial pop, and then finally got to like basically all out new metal. Um, I think if you look up a Decrypt's uh, catalogue on Spotify, you'll notice that the years nineteen ninety three to two thousand and five are totally absent, <laughs> and that is when they were at their like epitome of full on raging sort of industrial new metal they actually sound a lot like Rammstein and you mm. realise that Rammstein didn't form in a vacuum they were they were on the same circuit as that band they knew each other um, but stuff doesn't hold up very well But you, you can you can hear how they set in motion a lot of like electronics and things like that, and then it gradually got darker and heavier. They started bringing in guitars, and then it it continued down a, a sort of path. I mean, they've since pulled way way back from that since two thousand and five, when they actually brought out a really good record. They've they've changed direction again, and and around about that time, I guess you had like bands like Nitzereb so, uh, as well doing this sort of industrial yeah. pop stuff. You know, not really a lot of guitars, but like almost like the Pet Shop Boys, but evil as fuck you know what I mean just like really really dark stuff so that was all like 80s industrial um, and then more and more guitars seem to creep into it I mean I'm sure you guys grew up well grew up in the metal sense so where a bands like Godflesh who have mentioned yeah, I mean, Justin Broderick is a huge influence on the whole industrial metal scene. 
as is Al Jorgensen of Ministry and Revolting Cox and etc etc. Ministry are a very influential one in terms of mainstream metal. The Land of Rape and Honey came out in 1992. No, 1988. Hey, sorry, yeah, no, I'm thinking of um, Sam 69 came out in 1992, yeah. So yeah, Sam 69 came out in 1992 and just had that really big sort of well-produced metal chug as well as the sort of weird industrial bits. And Mm. also we talked about it when we did the butthole surfers as well, that kind of Mm. odd psyche edge to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Ministry started in 81, but it wasn't really until Land of Rape and Honey in 88 that they started bringing in these really quite evil sounding guitars and adding a bit more bombast and becoming really quite malevolent. Before that, there was something vaguely new romantic about Ministry, albeit they were darker than their peers. But yeah, they really transitioned in that alongside the likes of Godflesh. You know, that was Godflesh started in '88, I think, and Broderick had been doing stuff before that as well. But right from the the the, the offset, I mean, it's a fairly consistent catalogue. I think you know, really had a lot of ideas. I don't think it's always the best example of a genre with Godflesh. We'll probably come to them in a future show. Uh, but there's within there. Uh, catalogue there are most of the ideas that you will encounter uh, mm. just some other people took them and maybe did them slightly better at times um you mentioned skinny puppy a band that's really big uh, in the history of fear factory is uh, frontline assembly Um, Rhys Fulber uh, from Frontline Assembly was an ex-member of Skinny Puppy uh, and he moved on to Frontline from 1986. What was it they were called? Uh, Electronic Body Music or something like that. It's it's like a form of dance music that had like a lot of like vaguely political and quite intimidating sort of call-outs and shouts. It wasn't in itself really, really heavy, but it had a kind of political nature to it. It was quite confrontational and and Rhys... Produced and performed on so many Fear Factory albums, um, in, including the one we're going to talk to, talk about. Um, band, bands like KMFDM. German. Uh, are they German? I think they are yeah. German, aren't uh-huh. they? Yes, yeah. yeah. I mean, KMFDM are fascinating when you listen through the the, the, the variation uh, across this, the span of their career, like dance metal, techno metal, transitions into like almost like full-on techno at points. It's, it's quite eccentric. Uh, always remember as well, they had their brush with controversy around about the time with Columbine, where they were lumped in with another industrial metal name, Marilyn Manson. Um, and putting aside Marlon's notoriety, uh, the music from certainly Antichrist Superstar was quite iconic as a sort of pop interpretation uh, of industrial metal. Uh, 
as was the music that came before that, A White Zombie, and obviously later on, Rob Zombie. That was kind of like a lot of the industrial ideas, the big, bombastic, slower BPMs paired up with something that was a little bit more fun and accessible. Uh, Mark, you mentioned this midweek, Craig, talking about the band Prong. Mm-hmm. And uh, Prong's a good shout when it comes to industrial. Prong sit really weirdly between the likes of like Fear Factory and Helmet. Like they had something that was a lot crunchier and grungier in their sound, but yet the actual writing is very, very industrial and sparse and heavy, and, and the delivery is really, really full on. Um, Rude Awakening by them was a, a watershed record for that band, and you can hear big chunks of that in some of the Fear Factory stuff, including some of the later Fear Factory stuff, which we'll mention. Um, you were asking about Cyber Metal, a band that played part in even that nomenclature was uh, Oblivion, O-B-L-I-V-E-O-N. It's a French band and they brought out an album called Cyber Void in 1995. And I think what's pretty interesting about Cyber Void is that even just scanning the track titles, things like uh, Biomechanique, DSX Machina, Psychometrix, they were really heavily leaning into that sort of neo-futuristic fucking sci-fi, dystopian AI world that that Fear Factory were obviously mining heavily at, at this point as well. You also had, I mean, we, you had another couple of bands that we've done episodes on as well with Strapping Young Lad, heavily influenced by Fear Factory, you know, mm-hmm. Devin Townsend has said that, uh, and also Mashuga. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that mid nineties Mashuga is basically Matthew or Fear Factory. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's that's the thing. I think that's where the distinction with tech metal comes in a wee bit because yeah. Mashuga have like an industrial sensibility. Uh, but then it's far more complex and I think it crosses the line into tech metal and Fear Factory at their more elaborate do sound more like tech metal just like at their crunchier moments they sound more like groove metal Uh, and and on the first album that was released I would say that's the case I mean obviously we we can't forget Nine Inch Nails Right, yeah. a huge one and Ramstein who were peers of Fear Factory who they played with on numerous occasions um, and I'm sure they took a lot from that there's also just a couple of like later era ones I mean as much as they seem like a little bit of a of a joke to some people like Static X were taken pretty seriously by people that were into that style of music mm-hmm. um, I mean Wisconsin Death Trip's famous for uh, what's that single? I'm With Stupid is that the one? it was their breakthrough hit but um, by the time they got into their second album Machine in 2001 they were like full on cyber industrial metal 
you could say that about Spineshank as well. Yeah, I was going to I was going to mention them. Yeah, because Fear Factory actually toured with them, and actually I saw Fear Factory live at the QMU in Glasgow, uh, supported by Kilgore and Spineshank. Oh yeah. It was fucking terrible. It's absolutely <laughs> fucking terrible. It was a, a night I would gladly forget, but I, I can't. Um, well, yeah, I, I guess going back to Mark, a, a definition of cyber metal takes a lot of all these bands. I guess sonically, specifically, you could look at that really hefty, chuggy guitar sound from groove metal and Pantera and stuff like that, and then it adds it up to the sort of synthy stuff and the industrial sounding concrete slabs of industrial metal the staccato riffs are quite a big thing and a big part of it is then the aesthetic and the storyline like the narrative to a lot of these bands and that's something that fear factory have very much nailed and gone on with you know continued all the records pretty much are concept albums and they're all most of them are part of the same story and they all are basically uh Terminator (laughs) (laughs) yeah very much Uh, I mean cyber metal the the definitions do exist and like reading some of the fan forums about it were pretty good because I guess the fan forums tend to have a a more accurate or a more nuanced description of it than just some article thrown together by a magazine the the basic definitions were saying things like it was sitting between post thrash which I guess is also known as groove metal uh, and industrial metal Um, certain criteria were things like cyber metal unlike industrial style the guitars were not generally quite as thin and that was maybe some of the groove metal influence like there's a little bit more bottom end with the industrial metal the guitars were sitting in with synths and so they were quite quite thin and they were just given almost a quite razor sharp effect on the on the music they weren't even always there to really grab you they were there to sort of fuck with you a wee bit um whereas in cyber metal there were more of those kind of pantera-esque sensibilities still in the mix and so they were a little bit more scooped and i think scooping and the kind of technical approach to it's quite relevant because you know obviously fear factory came onto the scene early 90s you know the first uh, the aborted concrete album or the initially aborted concrete album and then the first album soul of a new machine they don't really define what they sound like. For me, Solo New Machine is much more sepulturish, and we'll talk about that in a second. But by the time they got to this, a lot of technology was changing. You had people using computers to record instead of, you know, tape. And that, that's a big part of it. Guitars started getting plugged straight into machines, and that, that's a really, really big change. And that gave that top end, that dryness to the guitars. It gives you a very, very distinct sound when you're not going out through a speaker, back in through a microphone. It, it, you get a completely different quality to the sound that way. So you had pods, which were a kind of pedal that allowed you to DI straight into a system. Um, I mean, by the early 2000s, loads of people were using a, a program called Guitar Rig. So they were basically just recording a dry signal and then running it through software to get their amp sound uh, rather than actually running it through real amps. Because frankly, it's just a little bit easier to control. You know what you're going to get. I mean, it's very off the shelf. It sounds very artificial to experienced ears but to the majority of people listening once it's sunk into the mix a lot of them can't tell um you also had a more white you know widespread availability of things like pro tools and logic they were becoming far more common um you had what else did you have you had bits of kit as well even for people that were amping things you'd like the mesa boogie dual rectifier heads were a really big thing uh you get a really dry scooped sound out of those um people were using a lot of ibanez and prs guitars which had a very distinct sound too pedal wise uh you had 
Zoom effects units were big. Trent Reznor had used Zoom effects units and some of the Nine Inch Nails stuff, and people got really into that. MXR pedals I actually have one of those, and fucking hell, if you want to scoop them, they are absolutely brutal. Uh, you had a thing called the Boss Hyper Metal pedal came out, and also you've obviously got the Boss Metal Zone, which by the way is a terrific bit of kit. It's not just used by metal bands. I mean, the likes of Fuck Buttons and Blank Mass uh, in the kind of electronics world, the harsh electronics world, use them a lot. Um, but yeah, just just generally uh, um, a lot of solid state amps, people getting rid of valves because valves tend to give you a warm sound and the whole cyber technological thing went hand in hand with this coldness, this digital coldness, DIing things straight into digital machines, taking amps and actual transistors and stuff out of the, the equation. Um, and then also with the percussion, loads of drum triggers. Drummers went from having you know really natural drum sounds to having... The drums were sometimes still in the mix, other times the actual kick drum was just taken out completely and replaced by a trigger. So even though it was a live performance, how live was it? They started using quantizers, which would like line the drums up very precisely. You would lose the organic sort of fluctuations of patterns and stuff, which to the producers, especially to those with OCD, was amazing because you could then put an arpeggiator or something over it and it would be totally bang on. But it robbed a little bit of the humanity, which again helped create a perfect moment for somebody to just come up with the term that's just kind of like cyber metal because it is, it's very robotic there is a synchronicity between human and machine so it does lend itself in terms of more than just the narratives and so it just seemed like a bit of a perfect storm I think for for that concept to make sense Mm -hmm. I also, it's interesting, I just want to talk a little bit about how influential movies were on a lot of bands and a lot of bands in the 90s I feel got their aesthetic directly from 70s, 80s and 90s horror movies or what have you and it's, it was quite interesting seeing how genres or specific bands just tied themselves to a look or a feel of mm-hmm. a movie and I mean obviously Fear Factory and Cyber Metal are just fully tied up in Terminator Event Horizon, even you know, yeah, Blade Runner, that sort of um, what, what's the word? What's Blade Runner? What's that? Dystopian uh, sci-fi. cyberpunk, 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 cyberpunk. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then at the same time, you had White Zombie who were using old school horror movie samples throughout their records, mm-hmm. but they also had a sort of psychobilly aesthetic. And also maybe Pantera had that, you know, southern vibe as well, like that redneck horror vibe. And you could kind of see like Texas Chainsaw Massacre influencing um, both of those bands. Typo Negative, really miserable, sexy goths. Yeah, um, but you know, you know something else that I, th- I think you're buying on there. But th- something else that plays a part here is the fact that again, when you look at computer technology, people were getting more powerful systems in in their homes and 3D rendering. It yeah. was becoming far, far easier at a higher level. You no longer needed like a kind of top of the line design uh, equipped Mac equivalent to do 3D rendering. You could render a 3D reflection, metallic reflection onto a logo quite easily. And suddenly there was an explosion both in like dance and electronic music, but also with metal where band logos went from being these really rough crude bloody sort of dribbly spiky thorny things you know like the black metal of the very early 90s or like Mm -hmm. the the 80s sort of thrash they became these really shiny 3d rendered uh, metallic 
symbols and then loads of like very complex modern cyberpunky digital looking designs like that was that was a response to the capabilities of the technology of the time and so that all contributed as you say to this sort of infatuation they had with the likes of Terminator and I think Event Horizon is a great example because it does walk that line between horror macabre cult sort of things mm. and then futuristic technology and it's I mean that's that film in itself is an unsung classic I think but it, it, it's it's a great crossover point a great meeting point and yeah and i guess it goes the other way because they ended up actually fitting very well to being the soundtrack for movies and yeah, indeed the, video games yeah the branding um, was appropriate yeah you're right and in actual fact it was a video game that i discovered fear factory from um they did i think it was maybe three or four songs and there were instrumentals they were all songs from Demanufacture, and they appeared on the Carmageddon soundtrack. Have you? Have either of you ever played Carmageddon? Yeah, yeah. I I, I didn't because I'm too old. Uh, <laughs> I, sh- <laughs> I shouldn't be, but that was a point where I discovered how to get served in the off license. Um, but yeah, uh, the best game ever, I believe, Dave. Oh man, I I played that game nonstop between. Well, when did it come out? Nineteen ninety-eight. Was it not nineteen ninety-eight? Oh yeah, so I was 13 basically um, 12, 13 I played it non-stop for about two years uh, You know, before my balls dropped And I discovered uh, <laughs> masturbation <laughs> um, Just I, I can't, by the way, I just say Fear Factory probably soundtracked that for you as well, <laughs> well uh, Yeah, that's true um, But yeah, like dystopian driving game Where you run over people and crash into cars And it's basically a video game version of death race 2000 but it's it's so much fun there's like a lot of dark humor in it and uh it was the per- they were just the perfect soundtrack to it because it's like yeah this crunchy dystopian futuristic metal but it's like thrashy and fun as well um and then what what else did they do they did like video game wise they did demolition racer as well they did test drive 5 plus they did at least two other test drive games mm-hmm. like they seemed really readily applicable to car games especially kind of like off the hook sort of banging into things you shouldn't yeah car games. they were on a they're on a soundtrack for a, a game called messiah as well oh yeah that was uh i remember playing a demo of that it was it was quite interesting yeah so um, it was a really really strange kind of sort of sci set in the future sci-fi game where you put like a little angel yeah um, really weird it was actually maybe the same people that made Earthworm Jim and it was their their, their, cha- their their attempt at making a more grown up game aimed specifically more adults outside of computer games as well a really big breakthrough was the Mortal Kombat soundtrack in 95 because as bad as the film was they completely suited it like they completely suited it. They, they were actually, it's actually, if this kind of music is your bag, that's an amazing soundtrack. It's it's absolutely chock full of fucking total rippers for that era. And they'd already been in the Johnny Mnemonic soundtrack at that mm-hmm. point as well. Mm-hmm. Um, they followed that a few years later with Ginger Snaps. 2002, they were in Resident Evil soundtrack. And I think Resident Evil is, is just the fucking perfect match for them as well because it's got that stupid sort of dystopian, conspiratorial, technological, science gone wrong, corporations are evil, war is terrible sort of vibe to it. And it's also, much like Fear Factory, prone to numerous terrible and pointless sequels. And it's just a fucking total match made in heaven. Um, Finally, I mean, the last one that I really remember them being involved in was Saw, a film which, by the way, I fucking hate. But uh, 2004 was obviously a huge film and a huge film for them to be involved in. Mm -hmm. Um, 
yeah, so I guess we should maybe talk about the band and how the hell they managed to stretch this Terminator narrative to 32 years. And boy, did they. Yes, they did. And, I, and they also managed to do it whilst falling out with each other and splitting up and then re-splitting up, you know, unsplitting and then forming two different bands at the same time pretty much every two years. And <laughs> boy, did they, yeah. Uh, they fell out. Fucking hell. Fucking hell, man. Honestly, there are a few times in this that I'm going to have to just take a fucking reality check and be like... How fucking old are these people, man? This is absolutely <laughs> mental. Right? I mean, so before, like, Concrete didn't actually happen as an album. We'll get to that in 2002, kind of chronologically, right? But the first thing they released uh, was Soul of a New Machine, and that, that came out on, on Roadrunner. They only actually got on a Roadrunner thanks to Max Cavalera, Sepultura, who I think mm. had t- taken the Ross Robinson sort of recording room CV thing that he was circulating of the Concrete album and had given it to the label and said, you, you should get behind this band, they're, they're, they're pretty tasty. Um, and I actually think Solo the New Machine, the band that it, it always uh, conjures to me the most is Sepultura. Yeah, like Chaos AD and um, Arise era, like that pre-Roots, still thrashy. It's got the same sort of ultra, like midless, ultra-scooped thrash mm-hmm. that was quite big then. Yeah, and then they start showing their sort of industrial influences aesthetically, I guess, and mm-hmm. a bit of synth. Um, Burton C. Bell's got his clean vocals coming in as well as his growl. I mean, he sounds like Cookie Monster well, on that album, though, man. Yeah, it's, it just does, does not work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, at that time, though, they were touring with quite a diverse array of people. I don't think people really knew what to do with them because they did tours with Biohazard, um, Sick of It All. They also toured with Cannibal Corpse. They toured with Cathedral and they toured with Sleep. Who the fuck is this band? What they did, though, was they hired Reese Fulber, the, the aforementioned me- member of Frontline Assembly and former member of Skinny Puppy, to remix a bunch of mm. the tracks off that album and this for me is like an incredibly pivotal point in the history of this band because that became Fear is the Mind Killer uh, the EP that came out in 1994 and I just think they listened to that and they listened to what this guy had done with that music and they made a a creative decision of like, wow, this is a much, much more interesting direction for us to take this music in. It wasn't just like they were happy with the remixes. I think they listened to the remixes and in some cases were like, fuck, that's better. We should actually just be making these remixes be the tracks. You know that that we we need to try and incorporate all of this, and you know Reese Reese Fulber was involved then on in. Um, they they worked with him really well and regularly. 
Mm-hmm. As we've mentioned, Demanufacture was the first day uh, a, a trilogy which was based on Terminator. Uh, <laughs> like, I mean, just that's not as being facetious. It was based on Terminator. Like, that, that was the inspiration behind it, and there are numerous references to it throughout it. Um, Samples from it as well. Samples from yep. Terminator 2, I think, to the track mm-hmm. sample it. Um, Fulber was involved with electronics and that, but he was also involved in the final mixing. Who obviously we're going to talk about that in, in more depth, but I think it's interesting at this stage to mention it because uh, the guy who had done it, Colin, is it Colin Robinson? Colin yeah, Richardson. Colin Richardson, yeah. Mm-hmm. He's, he's been involved in so many metal records. I think he's yeah, Welsh. He, and and he'd also he'd done solo the new machine, and he wanted to remix it with the crunchy low end with that kind of groove metal element still in there, and the band on the back of Fury's the Mind Killer I think, and on the back of listening to some of the other bands that were going about at this time now, decided they wanted to go for something a lot more slick and metallic and dehumanised and, and therefore they got I think there was a wee bit of acrimony about it, but they got Reese Fulber to remix the whole album. Uh, in a way that they thought, I mean, Richardson's thing had basically emphasised the guitars to the detriment of the electronics and the band wanted the electronics much more to the fore, much colder, more precise and really emphasised that digital aesthetic, uh, get the drums heavily triggered, things like that. And so you see a big pivot aesthetically, creatively, where they see themselves in the marketplace at this point and the, the, the media both the press and things like MTV or, well, the late night version of MTV and rock clubs and stuff really responded to it because the sound they came out with at this point clicked mm. in a way that the earlier stuff just had not. This is uh, this is where my contention, I guess, for this comes in. So I see Soul of a New Machine has been death metal band that want to try industrial stuff. And then three years later, after having heard probably things like Burn My Eyes, Far Beyond Driven, Vogue Display of Power, Astro Creep 2000, like... There's a significant groove element to it, which is missing from the first album. Which they, it sounds like a totally different band to me, and that was, that was probably always going to be the case with the remix and stuff, right? But this is just so close to like, things like that for me, like f- two groove metal bands. That that's the first thing I hear when you're Fear Factory. I don't hear industrial at all, even though I know it's there, but it's not the thing that I, p- I pick up on. It's the groove. It's the first thing I pick up on, and his vocals, man, like his scream becomes like Phil Anselmo's, like almost entirely. It's kind of weird. Mm. I'm not sure. I mean, I do hear it, but I mean, I think they lent into their strengths because, like, I think Dino and Raymond Herrera formed an unbelievably tight metal rhythm combo. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, fuck, they've juiced it for all they could, but, like, in the 90s there, they were just coming out with some unbelievable riffs um, and kind of defined that machine gun kick pedal I mean we'll talk about demanufacture and obsolete but perfectly timing you know that right hand on the on the rhythm guitar to the kick drum and the production on the kick drum as well is like so thick and so oversaturated to me it it sounds like fear factory it doesn't yeah it doesn't there are there are definitely bits that they you know you can hear oh there's a slight pantera you know bluesy bit in it and or whatever but yeah I mean I looked into it a little bit, right? Apparently, there's a re, there's a reissue or a sort of like a remastered version of this kicking around from the late nineties within the liner notes. Uh, Dino says that like a big influence on him in this record was Rugged Display Power. Um, mm-hmm. He's since gone on to say that his guitar playing was more fully formed by the time Pantera came around, which could also be true. But I think it's yeah. really weird to have t- 
two conflicting accounts from the same person <laughs> on that. Um, I, it, I'm not saying that. Yeah, it, I it, mean, straight answers are not forthcoming from this band. Yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely industrial elements and they are definitely an industrial metal band, but I, I, I always pick up on the groove. Personally, yeah. whenever I listen to them, and I mean, I, I mean, I, I kind of do that as well. I guess that's maybe the reason that I've chosen them over the last few years. I kind of forgot about Fear Factory and Pantera were always like the metal band that is like seen as legendary and blah blah blah. But in actual fact, I've kind of ended up finding myself going back to Fear Factory more than I go back to Pantera. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I find like a couple of the records just more rounded, and they're not fucking racist. Yeah. <laughs> Totally. You know, so um, they do what they say on the tin, and they do it well when they do it. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I I don't think you're wrong in terms of there's big elements of it, Mark. But honestly, man, like maybe you're like focusing too much on one element in the guitars there. And I, okay, maybe the vocals do sometimes sound a wee bit like like Anselmo. I've used the phrase Anselmo-ish at least three times in my notes mm. on the album. But when you look at the other things that are happening. The synths and the drums are nothing like Pantera, man. They're nothing like Pantera. This, the drums, for starters, are triggered to absolute fuck. Like, they are clicky as fuck, and the performance style is... The, the analogue performance of, of Pantera just isn't there. It's pure machine music, and the synth stuff just completely takes them into a different category. So whilst I, I do accept that there's, like, big flavours of it, and at times when the other music is stepping back a wee bit and the guitars take over, it's, like, especially apparent um, but I really feel at this moment they stepped away from that kind of more analogue world because Pantera could have played alongside any number of the like bands that we spoke about like Cathedral or whatever like that they, they could have played along with those bands and Fear Factory for me by this point are not a match are not a good match with those bands they're far more at home with yeah, fuck, even the Marilyn Mansons and Nine Inch Nails, they see, they're much more cold and technological, and the fact that there's a synth on stage just completely changes the game for me. Funnily enough, they did end up touring, because they got, you know, so successful, they ended up touring with fucking Black Sabbath and Iron Maiden. <laughs> yeah, well, but, they got asked know. to open for two huge Sabbath shows, mm-hmm. I believe, in, like, Milton Keynes or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um but I mean, we'll skip by this one for now because when they really underline that transition is on the album Obsolete, which was the almost choice of Dave. <sighs> A far more cinematic record, I think. Actually... I mean, I was about 17 when it came out and I kind of preferred it. Um, It had stronger melodies on it for me, yet it also totally went to town on that scooped, you know, very techy aesthetic. I believe that for this album as well, Dino tuned his guitars down to A, which is fucking low. Which is what Corn were doing. Yeah, so definitely trying to like add weight to the music in other ways because I actually think the production in this album is so clean that it's, it's so well done, it's so clear that it's not that heavy. I mean, in hindsight, it doesn't sound that heavy to me. It's actually, it's very precise. Um, That's because it's a new metal album. <laughs> mm. I, I don't know if it's a new metal album, because there, there's no rapping on it. Yeah, but that's not that's not that's not a feature. It's not a huge feature in new metal <laughs> all the time, particularly in the in the mid nineties. It was more towards like, like well, the late the early two thousands when rapping became more apparent. You know, bands like Corn yeah. didn't do a lot of rapping. I like, guess what we've talked about in the new metal mixtape was new metal became a parody of itself, mm-hmm. and 
was sort of yeah dirtied by what it became but yeah this was an early new metal record i guess along with you know groove and thrash and it's definitely less thrashier though than than demanufacturer I had the sense lately because I think new metal came fully formed out the womb an absolute <laughs> cunt <of> genre. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, but this is at the same time, like you can say Around the Fur is maybe a new metal record. Yeah. Um, you know, which came out the same year, actually. They are new metal, but they're not shit new metal. <laughs> right, like, okay. But I mean, it marks right to some extent, I think, that Edge Crusher is basically a new metal. Song. That's a corn riff. <laughs> It's the, yeah, it's the heaviest yeah. end of it. It's techier, yeah. It's but the vocals in it are right on the fucking cusp of rapping. They're like as close as Bell gets at this point, and yeah. it's just a stick on cat house tune. It's got a scratching in it. It's got yeah, DJ exactly. <laughs> um, so I, I do think there's an argument for that. Although I will say that I don't know many new metal songs that had a stand up bass on. Yeah, I know that's also kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I mean, there's a, there's a few standout ones on that album. Yeah. It's got good songs. Um, Shock, Shock works like that's a belter. Mm. Descent is like a big one. Descent's a big one. Yeah, I think that was maybe the first one I heard of Fear Factory, like with vocals after the Carmageddon soundtrack. That showcases they'd done a little bit on demanufacture, but that they were also goths a little bit, and you know it's a proper rock club tune. It's got that discordant but open like big chordy riff that really works. Um, I was unsure about Burton C Bell's vocals on this track when I first heard it. When he does his clean voice in a chorus and it's down in the mix a little bit, I think it really works. But when he's like doing a clean verse, mm-hmm. that is when he sounds a bit Cookie Monster, <laughs> a bit just a little bit embarrassing. As you say, like, there's something really amusing when these kind of gruff metal guys do a singing bit, but then yeah. the singing bit, they're not comfortable to just make the singing bit singing. It's all these two. But yeah. they have to either do the really gothy thing, like Pete Steele typo negative, which I think Burton C. Bell does now and again. I think that's what he does well, is when he does the Pete yeah, Steele. Yeah, that bit's pretty good. But Or they do that thing where they're like, I am singing, but I'm still a man. Mm-hmm. I'm they, still an angry man. They tried to add the rough. We will never be the same. Like they, yeah. they, they, they force the gruffness in there because they're like, I can't, I can't, I can't do this too sweet. I can't sing it, sing it because people will think I'm, I'm a wee right. bit, uh, uh, a bit soft. <laughs> yeah, and there's just something so Human. fucking lame about that in hindsight. I mean, you heard it in grunge all the way, but hearing it here, it's like I'm going to be sensitive. But tough, you know, yeah. it's, it's fucking like it's kind of cringeworthy. Um, I think the track uh, Freedom of Fire is quite an interesting one in this. Um, mm-hmm. 
nice. Uh, like it's got a really cool riff. It's got a nice heavy bit about three minutes in, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's got great bits in it, but the phaser vocals in it. I mean, what the fuck mm. were they doing? <laughs> I just don't get what they were after with that at all. Um, but it is. It's, it's quite a hardcore tune actually. That one. Um, yeah. Obsolete. The title track is just gent as fuck. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's another thing we haven't talked about is how influential on Gent they were, <laughs> you know. Well, yeah, they were the, one of the bands kind of pioneering that that sound and they yeah. leaned into it more and more and more, albeit I think Meshuggah were always slightly further down that road yeah. than they yeah. were. Um, now, I was a really big fan. When I was saying that this was the album that appealed to me more at that age, uh, I thought Resurrection was great. I think it, it does really work. I think it really works. It's, it's their best melodic moment full stop in yeah, their career totally. mm-hmm. but it's got really filthy guitars under that melody mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. and and Mark you were saying about Spotify listening something really surprised me about this this is only sitting at about 1.7 or 1.8 million Spotify listens whereas Descent which I think is a, a, a far inferior song is almost double that that was a mm-hmm. single though it, but this was a single as well this got a video mm. and I always thought this was like a really standout track for this band I was I was really confused that it didn't have like that people weren't going to this album I thought it would be the song that people went to in this album honestly other than Cars which comes after it but I just think that Resurrection itself has loads of great phases in it Um, they progress the song really well. Uh, as you said, Dave, when he sings in the lower register uh, in the pre-choruses, it works great. Like his his voice totally clicks then. And even um, there's some lovely use of strings and that kind of long vocal ro- the vocal mm. sustain that he does at the end of the choruses. The strings do that. Da, 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 da. It's a bit flamboyant, but it, it, it's really good. It's good that they embraced it. Um, and yeah, and then the other obvious standout is Cars. Because Cars was another total banger for rock clubs. The heavier version of the Gary Newman song with Gary Newman on it. And single, I think it, it did pretty well. It charted pretty high. Cars. Yeah, yeah, it was in the top forty, definitely. Mm. Um, but it, it's, it's. I just want to say, I, Smasher Devourer has maybe my favourite Fear Factory riff on it. Just from a pure metal perspective, that's mm. the sort of shit I'm into. But yeah. Fuck me, the backstory of this album is absolutely painful. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, so uh, and then that, so that was nineteen ninety eight, and that was actually the best selling record, and still is, I think. Yeah, uh, that's right. And yeah. like they did Ozfests, and they were touring, you know, big day outs and stuff like that. And then just as new metal was getting really big. 2001 they came out with Digimortal which I believe was the third in the trilogy of this conceptual storyline Wow, Terminator Um, Mm -hmm. Yep It's one of those records that came out by a non-new metal band but that leaned into new metal. So I'm thinking <laughs> Diabolus and Musical by Slayer, yeah, The Burning Red by Machine Head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it was also, it was kind of peak metal time on like Krang, MTV2, Headbangers Ball, uh, Family Values Tour, stuff like that. So Lynchpin on this record became what, their biggest fucking hit. You know, for when teenagers got their hit, you know, metal from music TV. And I, I remember this album coming out and it definitely got lumped in with new metal. But going back to it, it is mostly just Fear Factory. Uh, the production's a little bit cleaner. Um, His voice is higher mostly, but there's, there's some unforgivable sins on it, though, that, that contribute to it being yes, in, you do in, have to in the new that. metal canon, I think. I mean, Mark, you're saying about the vocals being higher in the mix. The vocals in this, I, I think, are really badly mixed. Uh, they sit right out on top. They're, they're not just higher in the mix they're on top of the mix and yeah. it, it just is yeah it's a, it's a new metal production yeah like they've, they've it, gone high with the vocals and I think just... they've thought about that because this is the shortest album pretty much all the songs bar two are no longer than four minutes under four minutes actually all of them mm-hmm. apart from two um, I think this that record was a conscious decision to try and stay relevant that's I mean, why else would you fucking bring BD Lawn to do a song if you side by side so I mean, the scratching I know there was scratching present previously but fucking hell the scratching in that is absolutely fucking stinking like it does sound like Static X and stuff at the time and as I said that's when they were like well actually that was after they'd been touring with Kilgore and Sp- Spike El Nino touring with El Nino and stuff like that yeah so uh, and I think I mean, look what they're surrounded by and they're just absorbing fucking stuff that's going to horribly date the album and it, it yeah. is horribly time stamped by those those ingredients we're going to get to the main one in a moment but before that you've got no one which i think is a lot like prong Um, and has a, a bunch of like kind of tech metal tropes through it. Lynchpin, as you say, most played song. I think the disco beat in that that kind of like hi hat sixteen thing probably explains why it worked so well in industrial clubs because it's not something they use yeah. often at all. Plus, they had the sense to put in a bunch of vocal hooks in it. They can't tear me apart, obviously. Um, I think the sung chorus in that though, I think it's shit. I don't think it's nearly as good melodically as as Alexa Resurrection. And then track eight. Back the fuck up, <laughs> featuring B Real. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, right, let's talk about, like, Acres of Skin is fucking massive, properly thrashy. Invisible Wounds is one of their trying to be the cure ones. But very it's singable. funny because they can't, they can't not hit their instruments very hard. <laughs> like, everything's triggered, so... It's so much like a metal band trying to not be a metal band, but they can't be because they're, they're only either on or off. They're very binary. Um, and the, yeah, back the fuck up. Featuring Be Real. <laughs> <laughs> that exists. Look, I don't think it is as dreadful as some of the rap metal crossovers that came out around this time. It just, it does not fit on a good metal record we agree it's dreadful I'm glad you used that word you said not as dreadful but not still as dreadful. dreadful I mean it's it's fucking limp biscuit cash in shit man it's absolutely fucking rancid and you know I was kind of watching it bearing in mind this is all in the context of three albums that are preposterously about dystopian futures and fucking Terminator and I was like how the fuck does shitty hip hop limp biscuit cast off stuff fit with a vision of a dystopian future? And then I realised that I just answered my own question. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> but, you know, the other thing that really dawned on me at this point was, was like, like, I've just finished a trilogy of albums about the fucking movie Terminator. And by the time they fucking finished these albums, these guys were well into their 30s. These are adults, right? These, these are adults still writing a trilogy of albums about the movie Terminator and trying feign outrage and screaming and howling and making moody ambient passages about the movie Terminator (laughs) (laughs) what the like just as I said there's just going to be a few reality checks in the course of these episodes where I'm like is this fucking adults here by the way these are grown men well, we'll uh, maybe call a halt to um, part one of this. <laughs> yeah, I need to. I need uh, double to go episode. Splash cold water on my face. <laughs> in, in part two, we'll talk about these men getting gradually older and into their forties and even their fifties. Uh, still writing concept still albums, writing songs about Terminator. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no. But we will also obviously talk about D Manufacturer, the record, which I think is great, and we will uh, do the Nexus. Yeah. So at the start of the episode, we spoke about how how we had a little bit of a her own head in the chopping block idea for uh, for bonus content. So if you're if you're interested in hearing this, then you should definitely sign up to our Patreon. So we do a thing on Patreon occasionally where we ask people for ideas for episodes, and somebody asked if we would do our first demos if you would review our own first demos when we first started playing in bands um, so we're going to do that real soon. Actually, I actually found a CDR copy of it. Yeah. What what we're going to do is we're going to open the floor to listeners to send in their... And it has to be your first demo. Don't go fucking cherry-picking the demo that is the least embarrassing. It has to be your first recorded thing in a group. Give it to us and we will praise it or, as is more likely... Destroy the absolute it. shit out of you. Um, <laughs> but in good faith, we're going to do that to each other first to show that we're not above the free. And does that finally, that means that finally uh, listeners will be able to hear Weaver's High School Band? Three and a half goddamn um, years later. <laughs> well, yeah, sign up to Patreon and you'll get to hear that. So. Let's think about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's been, a, been a rough week, isn't it? <laughs> I didn't even mention Scotland. <laughs> Fucking hell. All right. See you next week. Bye.
You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.